0: Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page and free. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking with the legendary bassist Pino Palladino, an artist so prolific he's played with everyone from The Who to D'Angelo.
1: I'm Jim DiRigatis, and I'm Greg Cott. And speaking of D'Angelo, we've got a classic album dissection of his 2000 masterpiece, Voodoo.
2: Play you like
1: a pro and take over the show. Sneak you in you. Pop you up. That's a little bit of the song Playa Playa by D'Angelo, the first track off his 2000 album Voodoo. Today we're doing a classic album dissection of that record, the story of Voodoo and what followed. Is absolutely fascinating.
0: It, it absolutely is, Craig. Uh, before we dive into talking about the record, let's give some background about who D'Angelo is as an artist. He's born Michael Eugene Archer in 1974, grew up in Richmond, Virginia, the surrounding area, came up in the church as the son of a pentecostal preacher and fell in love with music, especially classic soul, R&B and funk, and you can hear those influences all over his songs. Was originally part of that neo-soul movement, people in in that genre getting back to uh, you know, recording with real instruments away from synthesized productions Um, after being a member of a couple of different groups he signed in 1991 age 17 to EMI and he worked as a songwriter until his debut in 1995 the brown sugar record
1: now brown sugar was a huge hit Jim and uh, many felt at the time that this young artist D'Angelo was taking up the mantle from greats like uh, Marvin Gaye with those sultry vocals and those very soulful songs but around this time, he took a step uh, in a different direction. He joined the musical collective The Soulquarians, which included artists like Questlove, Jay Dilla, Erica Badu, Common, Mozdev, and Q Tip, to name just a few. His next album, his number two album, Voodoo, is the reason we are here
0: today. It didn't come out until five years after Brown Sugar. He was experiencing some serious writer's block, and he felt the pressure from his label and the public to release new music that upped the ante on what he had done previously— It took a while, but eventually we got Voodoo, which was well worth the wait. At least you and I thought so. (laughs) I remember us talking endlessly in 2000 Mm -hmm. about how mystical, magical, entrancing this album was. Thirteen tracks, iconic songs like Devil's Pie, Send It On, and Feel Like Making Love. It didn't, however, have the commercial impact that Brown Sugar had. It's weirder, it's more experimental, uh, but it still added to his status as a sex symbol, which at times threatened to overshadow
1: the music. Yeah, that's true, Jim. And uh, to take a deeper look at Voodoo, we're joined by Faith Panic. Faith is a filmmaker and writer and also an author of a fantastic 33 and a third book on Voodoo. She's a fan of this record and an expert on it. Welcome to Sound Opinions, Faith.
2: Thank you both for having me.
0: Voodoo, I think, is the dirtiest record ever made. Not dirty as in salacious, but I put this album on and I I smell the chicken grease. I smell it frying. You know, it's like, this is a dirty gumbo is the word you used, you know, and very carnal, but not in a misogynistic way.
2: Right. It's interesting because I don't think of voodoo is dirty. I mean, I don't, I mean, I guess the, the define dirty because I think people hear dirty and of course they think sex. Um no, or no, just no. Being... I'm
0: talking about chicken grease and and rolling in the swamp mud.
2: So you're talking about like, yeah, like a, right. Dirt in a metaphorical sense. No, I mean, I, in that sense, yeah. I think you I think you're correct. He's Southern, he's a Southern boy. And I think the album embraces that. I think it embraces his experiences as a young black man. It's got to be sort of dirty and sort of raw because life is dirty and raw. You know, it, it yeah. life is not polished. I mean, it, stuff happens and it can get messy, and there are things you can't Real control, messy. and it will f yeah. up your life, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, let me tell you about the, let me, let me you about the chicken, uh, uh stuff,
0: some things that make the people get out of the
1: you mentioned the, the word dirty and chicken grease came up with that song, uh, Faith, but I, I, I think you get at the reasons why the album sounds that way by sort of the textural components and the way the music was played, the groove sl- uh, being slower than uh, people would anticipate for a contemporary R&B record, playing behind the beat, right. the willingness to sort of tolerate mistakes, what was the beginning point of that sort of way of thinking? I mean, they clearly were not wanting to make a straight-up commercial R&B record. When did that become clear that that had to be the direction?
2: I think it's pretty clear that he did a complete 180 from Brown Sugar. Let me tell you about this girl, maybe I should. I met her in Philly, and her name was Brown Sugar. See, we've making love constantly. That's why my eyes always I think he, D'Angelo himself, probably felt like, wow, you know, I've got more in me. I have more interesting things to say, more intricate ways to express my musicality, my emotions, and that brown sugar was scratching the surface. And I think this is where his friendship with Russell Elevado, his engineer. He met Russell Elevado ironically, through his ex, Angie Stone, and D'Angelo was looking for someone to replace Bob Power to uh, mix the rest of Brown Sugar, which was still unfinished at the time. So Russell Elevado came on, they hit it off immediately. They were like, you know, two brothers from different mothers. And, you know, I think Elvado really encouraged D'Angelo to you know push the envelope and really you know sort of get more raw nastier not as not as pristine not as polished as brown sugar is you know but really sort of you know embrace the dirt if you will And I think that was their intent from the very beginning, and they brought on people who were in sync with that. D'Angelo hired musicians who are, you know, at the time, were, in, in some cases still are, at the top of their game, and were open to improvisation and, like you said, playing behind the beat. I mean, Pino Palladino, who played bass on a lot of the album, talked about and that was hard for him because he he you know yeah, that wasn't yeah. necessarily an easy thing for him to do he was like I don't know what this is but I will, I will figure it out he can play whatever he wants I mean he just he's just that good and that versatile and and that's why D'Angelo wanted him on the album similar to yeah. Charlie yeah. Hunter uh, who's another, you know, great uh, bass and guitar player who comes out of the jazz tradition. Ditto Roy Hargrove, the La- Roy Hargrove, James Poyser. The lineup he had, are, you know, he just had people who could just play what, if you say play this in, you know, in this time signature, you know, in this way, you know, standing on your head on fire, they would be able to, they're like, yes, okay, we can do that. Yeah. To be able to attract, uh, Musicians of that caliber on your album says a lot about you as an artist and that It proves you know that you know D'Angelo is an artist that pretty much anybody Who's who's good enough or you know would want to work with but also it just shows how open-minded They were as far as like yes, we want to do some different thing We you know, it's a it's a brilliant album, but it's also a, a fun It's a fun album to listen to because you you just feel the i mean the passion is so there it's not there's there's not a false note or false sense of emotion on that album
0: A big component of D'Angelo's image at this time was his sexuality. It was in the music, as well as in videos, like the one for Untitled, How Does It Feel, in which he is, gasp, shirtless. <laughs> in your book, Faith, you talk about how women and many others loved that video. One thing I didn't realize was how many people, specifically black men, thought D'Angelo was gay.
2: Well, I don't know. Either they thought he was gay or they just resented him to no end. They were so put off by what they perceived as homoerotica, that, you know, because here's this man with no shirt on, presumably naked, singing directly into the camera, and they're like, well, what is this? And it's, But uh, but here's the thing, though, and this this is what I always find interesting about it, is that, that he wasn't, D'Angelo wasn't the only black man with no shirt on in a music video at that time. You had LL Cool J made his career you know, on being shirtless in music
0: <laughs> yeah, videos. Never wear a shirt.
2: Yeah, he never wore a shirt. Did, did he own a shirt? I mean, you know, ditto yeah. DMX. Ditto Tupac. Yeah. Ditto, I mean, you can. Yeah. I can go down the list of, I mean, I, I think see. I mean, just how many black men had their shirts off in music videos and no one cared. But, oh my God, Untitled comes out. And I think this is why black men got mad and wanted to call D'Angelo gay because they couldn't deal with it. They were mad because that video was made for the 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 female gaze it was made for women to look at particularly black women and the black boyfriends husbands significant others fathers they just couldn't deal with, they just were like well why are you watching you know cuz women would like shush people when that video came on like wherever they were <laughs> yeah. they were just in, in you know they would be like get out of my room or get out of my house and I'm feeling right on be the same.
0: Correct me if I'm wrong though And I'm I'm obviously talking from a white male perspective But I also think there is a a sexuality that is um, So you're talking as a woman who's being struck by that But it almost transcends male or female Like some of those voodoo gods And you see the the, uh, statues, right? right, The icons You don't know, are they male, are they female? It's just like raw sex Period.
2: No, that's a good, that's a very good point, Jim. And again, this is, I think it's a difference from like a lot of the other men that I mentioned, the performers who had their shirts off. I think in this case, D'Angelo was like, you know, instead of being aggressive, he was being submissive. He was like, you can have me. I am yours. This is for you. And I think that is the difference. So that, to me, that, that extends beyond sex and sex appeal, that's about... Like uh, so again, submission and saying I am giving myself to you, and that's why black women and I mean women across races, but women in general yeah. just lost their minds. But black women in particular, like because there was just nothing, li- <laughs> nobody was singing to women on MTV. Like no one, none of these music. I mean, not in that way. It was very like yeah. you can get. You know, I'm gonna do this to you and da 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 da, and it was again very sort of you know very masculine in your face. Whereas this was like it's in your face, but in a in a different way and we just weren't used to that you know but I think it's a sexuality that was nuanced and I think frankly that got lost in the conversation around the entitled video.
1: I I think there's so many misinterpretations of the nuances in there Uh, and I I feel like your book alludes to the idea that those got lost especially on the subsequent concert tour Yes, uh, where I think he uh, started to feel that he was being perceived as this Sexual being and that was it and everybody else was sort of missing the layers that were in his music. I mean And boy, it it, it was a there was a series of meltdowns and arrests after that. I mean, can we really draw that line from that sense of They're missing the point to you know, I'm going silent for the next two decades basically
2: (laughs) Um, yeah, I can um I did so in the book. I think definitely the pressure of being, I mean, it 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 makes me think of the saying, you know, be careful what you wish for because you might get it. And when he mm-hmm. made the entitled video, which was his uh, ex-manager's uh, idea, the late Dominique Trenier, um and he did it, Trenier and D'Angelo did it because they wanted him to make a splash. They didn't just want Voodoo to come out and rest on its rest on its laurels as an album, which obviously it could have, and it does, but they wanted, they wanted that, they wanted MTV eye, eyeballs, they wanted BET eyeballs, they wanted, they wanted it to be a sensation, so they, you know, the, the entitled video was made, and unfortunately, I do think that the video overshadowed the Voodoo album, and so, yes, when he went on tour, when D'Angelo went on tour in 2000, and I, I saw him twice on that tour, and there were women in the front rows, screaming take it off throwing panties on stage grabbing at him trying to rip his clothes off and i think yeah at a certain point he got tired of that because first and foremost he is a musician he isn't he's a singer he's an artist d'angelo wants to be taken seriously he's not just there to be ogled at and you sort of touched like he's you know a Ken doll and and mm-hmm. it's funny because you know and actually I, I interviewed his current manager Alan Leeds for the book and he said at the time he was his tour manager um for the voodoo tour in 2000 and he said I thought D'Angelo would like this I mean what man wouldn't like to be the focus of all of these women who want to sleep with you i mean but i think they he and Traineer, Leeds leads underestimated d'angelo's sensitivity and they didn't prepare yeah. him for it and so yeah it mm-hmm. it really took its toll because he couldn't just be when you hit that level of fame you can't just go home and just be be normal and be michael again Africa is my descent. But
1: that, that D'Angelo tour was something. That's one that uh, I'll never forget because it was just it was just spectacular. Yeah, and you know I, I've seen him since. I mean, obviously he's, he's come back, and and the shows have been good. But that was. That was a singular tour. There were so many uh, complex emotions going through him at the time. I think that's why we got the show we got back then.
2: Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was, again, he was working out a lot of things in real time. I mean, uh, superstardom. And I'm not sure who he was dating at the time, but I'm sure that was probably a part of it. Because love, (laughs) you know, romantic love always seems to be a part of D'Angelo's musical you know expression um you know and he i think when he toured at that point he had had a second child so i mean yeah he was he was dealing with a lot of stuff and you know at a at at still again a very young age and you know working that out while still touring while still promoting his album i think that took its toll and i think he just decided you know what i'm i'm piecing out on this i'm not you know even when he came back you know in 2014 with black messiah I mean, he toured, you know, but he did not, um, you know, do a lot of press. And, you know, I think at this point mm-hmm. he pretty no. much is just no. like shut down as far as the, you know, doing any kind of promotional uh, work for any yeah, To, to what
0: extent, Faith, do you think it was like Brian Wilson made Pet Sounds, Kevin Shields made uh, Loveless with My Bloody Valentine, uh, you know, Jeff Mangum made those two Neutral Milk Hotel Records, all considered masterpieces, all followed by like two decades each of silence, or 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 in Wilson's case, just very sporadic output. You yeah. know, I mean, do you think he was? Do you think he knew? I created one of the best albums of all time, not just in the genre of R and B or right. soul or whatever you want to go. And like, how do I hell hell do I follow this up? I don't know. I'm going on vacation. <laughs> uh,
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean. I, I did not... and I, I tried, to, but I did not interview D'Angelo for this book. I would have loved to. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah. I Just speaking for myself, I don't know how you follow up something like Voodoo. I mean, to me, you know, that that is his pinnacle. That is... I don't... And I mean, I, again, when Black Messiah came out in 2014, I like the album. I think it's good, but it's not Voodoo. I mean, to me, no. I... I and it's obvious that he sort of picked up where voodoo left off and and it's funny because i know a lot of people who are like i love black messiah they love that album and i think in a way because you know they had time you know they were able to catch up to voodoo they had like basically a decade and a half to have voodoo grow on them and sort of prepare them for black messiah and so when black messiah came out and also you know it's just sort of like Oh, okay. In a way, I mean, D'Angelo caught up with it because you know he put out Black Messiah in his mid forties. So, in a way, it's like okay, now this is the album we would expect a, a mid forties genius to put out, as opposed to someone in his early twenties. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that was. I mean, I'm sh- that. I know he had writer's block even when he was writing Voodoo, and that's part of why it took so long to finish. So I wouldn't be shocked if writer's block didn't. I mean, on top of depression and. Having losses in his personal life and just all of the, the post voodoo, post untitled stuff that really sort of rained down on him. Yeah, he it probably did. He probably was like, I'm just going to take a vacation for 10 some odd Two, years. T- 20 years. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> well. that's right. You know? <laughs> uh, although, although I have to say, it wasn't just a vacation. I mean, you know, there were drugs, there were, there were alcohol abuse, and, yep. and that horrible car, car crash. crash in 05 where I was worried like oh god this is the end and you know I'm just glad I mean and, and honestly I think if he never recorded another note I was just glad that he survived that um, just to be with his family and his children the people who care about him And um, but yeah so it, it did get it, it got very dark um, and so it wasn't just a vacation it did get very dark and I'm glad that it, at least it seems like right now he's healthy and you know, still working on music. One, two, three, four, nine,
1: we have been talking to Faith Panic, the author of Voodoo, a uh, deep dive into the making of that record. Faith, it's been great talking to you.
2: Thank you both for having me.
1: That wraps up our classic album dissection of Voodoo, and now we want to hear from you, our listeners. You think it holds up? What's your favorite track or memory from listening to that album? Let us know in our Facebook group or in our Patreon community. Or leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, so we can play it on the show. Coming up, our conversation with voodoo bassist Pino Palladino on Sound Opinions.
0: And we are back. This week we're talking to legendary bassist Pino Paladino. Since the early 80s, Pino has made a name for himself as the go-to session and touring basis for artists ranging from The Who and Nine Inch Nails to D'Angelo and Elton John, even John Mayer. The list goes
1: on and on. Pino, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you for having me. You've worked with everybody and anybody, it seems like, over the last three decades. <laughs> what a resume. I have no idea how, in the middle of all the work that you do, Uh, that you were able to put together uh, a record uh, of your own. Notes with attachments that you did with uh, multi-instrumentalist and producer Blake Mills. How did you manage that?
3: Well, it took me 40 years. You just said it. I mean, you know, (laughs) I think it's about time. I've been fortunate enough to stay, you know, extremely busy throughout my career, if not with recording, with with touring and being parts of uh, various touring setups over the years. Um, And there never seemed to be enough time to really devote to a solo project. Plus, I didn't know what the hell to do. You know, I mean, what what I do, it, it's kind of difficult to translate necessarily into a solo record. You know, I, I play in a lot of genres of music with lots of different um, artists, and I get to ex- express myself through their music, but not in a virtuoso way, mostly. So, so you know, I've always it's always been a conundrum for me as to how, you know, how to approach a solo record. But but it took a long time, but uh, the timing was right.
0: Mm -hmm. So, Pino, one of the reasons we were interested in talking to you is we were doing a a series of interviews with uh, great session musicians. Your talents have fueled records by so many great artists. D'Angelo, Nine Inch Nails, Simon and Garfunkel, Don Henley, Gary Newman, Adele, uh, John Mayer, Margot Price, right? I'm just writing down some of my favorites that you either recorded with or toured with. We wanted to get to uh, a little bit of the gestalt of how uh you approach uh sessions with so many diverse artists you know do you go in with a mindset of i'm going to give them what they want or they're calling me they must want what pino does or or how how do you how do you juggle that kind of variety
3: yeah that's, it's it's a really good question uh, which i haven't really analyzed much over the years it's it's just something i do naturally now after such a long time i think the first thing i look for is just communication channels, you know, that's what it's all about. With the producer and the artist, just to make sure there's nothing in the way, really. You know, that's my main concern when I get in the studio, is just establishing communication um, so that we can just get right to it and, and try and find the best thing for the music. That may be oversimplifying a little bit because there's a lot of stuff that comes into play just in communication. But I don't really go in with an idea of what I'm going to play or how it's going to be. I'll take a bunch of instruments... And, and just feel it out as the process evolves. Um, sometimes it could, you know, I'll hear a song that, that I'm going to play on and think, wow, I'm lucky to get to play on this. It's going to be a great mm-hmm. song with or without me. I just have to not ruin it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and other times I will hear a song and just think, wow, this was, you know, this this could have been written for me to, to do my thing on. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I'll really get a chance to express something through it. And then there are times where there may be a time constraint and the studio clock is ticking away and you just get the feeling you need to get it done. Other times you just feel like you could be there for three days working on a bass track and it would be cool. So so each case is, is different.
1: bring that sort of multifaceted you know aspect to your record I I imagine working on all these different sessions that's the thing that's always struck me as amazing is that you can go from working with D'Angelo to the Who and you find a way to make it work the artists obviously trust you to do it but is that ever daunting like oh I'm out of my depth here there's something this isn't a style of music that I'm not comfortable with has that ever happened to you
3: No, (laughs) I I can usually. That's great. I mean, you know, it's it's not rocket science. It it really isn't. Mm -hmm. It's it's. I know that's a cliche, but there's usually some sort of thread that I can find in whatever music I'm asked to to be a part of. Mm -hmm. You know, I can I I can relate to something I've heard or or music I grew up with, and bring that into the music. And 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 I've always been really uh, conscious of wanting to play the right thing. It's probably just part of my personality. I I just want to, you know, get it right. You know, whatever the genre is, fit into it and uh, make it as good as it can be from my perspective.
1: Do you have these musicians telling you, I mean, does anybody say, play that piano line that you do so well on such and such a record and they want you to basically, like, make a carbon copy version of yourself for for this record or do they kind of leave it up to you or do they give you very specific instructions about what they want, irrespective of what you've done in the past.
3: Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. I mean, as musicians or artists, we, we all want to be invited to play or be in, participate in a project for what we're about to do, right? Not what we've done. Right, but, right. But it's not always that. Sometimes people, especially in the music industry, will call you because they've heard you play on something and they, they like what you did to that record and they're hoping that you can bring something similar to their record. So I'm always aware of that. It used to happen more back in the 80s when I was playing a lot of fretless bass and it was was a very characterful sound, shall we say. Um, You couldn't miss it, you know, it was there, right in your face. times where I would go to play on records and somebody would have already put like a keyboard guide bass down um, playing my licks, you know, playing my fretless licks that they'd hear me playing on on other records. So it became a sort of a vocabulary really um, in terms of a bass bass approach back then. And yeah, that used to be a bit tiresome, um, just going in and hearing what somebody thought you would play kind of thing yeah (laughs) why
0: bother to have you
3: come in (laughs) you know and I I would say that a few times let's say you know what it sounds great what you've done why don't you just keep it you know yeah Mm. but yeah that doesn't happen so often now most of the time it's uh, it's an open page for me to just you know come in and and, and add something I'm, I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position I've built it up over many years and I think yeah most people trust me to they'll at least give me a chance to find something and if it doesn't you know, the way they were hoping then they can always pull me back in in line and just say well we thought it could be more like this and i'm always open to that take us back to wales and and how uh giuseppe
0: becomes peanut. You know, why there's a giuseppe in wales Cardiff to begin with. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I'm sure people are tripping right now uh, because uh, they expected, you know, an Italian accent, right? <laughs> you know, a guy named Pino, a guy real named Giuseppe should should be talking like he's from Jersey. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, like me. <laughs> uh, but so, uh, tell us about your upbringing. It's fascinating.
3: Yeah. So my dad was born in Italy in um, in, in a uh, relatively unknown part of Italy called Molise. Uh, the capital city is Campbell Basso. Um, so I guess when he was in his early 20s, I think the time frame is pr- is pretty correct, he he came off to the UK and eventually ended up in Cardiff, in Wales, to get some work in the steelworks just to, to work his passage mm-hmm. to Canada. I think he was originally trying to get to Canada. Um, but whilst in Wales working at the steelworks, he met my mum and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, he never left Cardiff actually then he went on to work in the restaurant industry as many Italians did and set up his own restaurants and so as a kid i was always around you know kitchens and restaurants and worked in my dad's restaurants uh, you know when i was in my early teens and also we used to rehearse upstairs you know my first band my dad let us rehearse in the upstairs floors of the of the restaurant so in Cardiff back in the 70s there's a lot of different nationalities. It's a big docks area, right? So a lot of boats yeah, yeah. came in over the, over the years. And, and so there's a lot of nationalities there, a lot of different influences musically. And I got to take all that in, you know, from, from sort of uh, traditional rock and roll, you know, uh, Chuck Berry, Lil Richard, stuff like that. That was very big in all the bands in Cardiff back in my teens. Um, mm-hmm. And a little later on, I got into the reggae side of things and the soul and the R&B. But I grew up pretty much like most most uh, musicians at the time, playing "Born to Be Wild" on guitar and "Stairway to Heaven" and stuff like that. <laughs> you know. In Cardiff, where where I grew up, uh, there's an area in Cardiff, the Docks area, which was also known as Tiger Bay. There was a film about it, and uh, you know Shirley Bassey's from from Cardiff too. And there's a story there, Tom Jones. I mean, you know, incredible. It's a soulful place. <laughs> It, re- it is, man. It really is. Yeah, I like to think so. Um, so I spend a lot of my my years, my late teens and early 20s, you know, down in the docks area in, in sort of clubs where they would play a lot of reggae music and American funk and jazz and R&B. And, uh, and, and even before that, Motown was my favorite. You know, um, I remember just... I went to uh, a skating rink with the school when I was about 14, and that was the first time I heard really loud music. Uh, I couldn't believe it. They were playing Motown, um, Diana Ross and the Supremes, and Junior Walker, stuff like that. They were playing it through a big PA at the skating rink, and that really did it for me. I was like, that got into my blood straight away.
0: Coming up, we continue our conversation with bassist supreme Pino Palladino. He'll tell us what it was like to work with D'Angelo and talk about the phone call that led him to playing bass for The Who on almost no notice. That's next on Sound Opinions. And we are back. And this week, we are talking with bassist Pino Palladino about his illustrious career uh, in music. Let's get back to that conversation.
1: The soul influence, when when you mention that, and I think about you recording with D'Angelo, and your bass was so brilliant on those records, clearly valued by the people around you. What was it like? I mean, the Soul querings, that was kind of like an interesting atmosphere they created, especially for the Voodoo record. What was it like walking into that recording session?
3: Well, yeah, I mean, it's amazing, really, because I was—I uh, was so at home. Guess I would have related to my early days in Cardiff, as I say, listening to R and B and playing that music. So you know, move on, however many years it was, from the early seventies to almost two thousand, nineteen ninety-seven. Meeting D'Angelo and working with that collective was really rewarding for me, as I felt that my roots in music, that was a big part of my roots in music, and never really had had the opportunity to, to fully express that side, until I met those guys, so I think that's what it felt like home for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, you know, as a collective, they're, they're just so generous and, and so welcoming, and it wasn't really much thought process actually, It's very natural, you know, the first time I sat in the studio with, with D'Angelo and um, Quest and we played together as a trio, it, it was almost like I wasn't even playing, it was just playing itself, it just felt very very mm-hmm. natural, all, all the stuff I'd learned and listened to over the years seemed to just come out naturally at that point.
0: Cliché, Pino, in drum bass rhythm section lore, you know, I say this as a as a drummer who's been reading modern drummers since I was 12. English musicians, uh, drummers and bassists, play behind the beat. Americans are on top of the beat. And there is that elastic feel. I've seen you talk about it in interviews. You're further behind the beat than you would normally have played. And D'Angelo wanted this kind of, it lets the music breathe in a different way and i was wondering if they turned let's get that tall white guy because because then you know because quest love does what quest love does man he's on it you know uh that snare holy cow uh did they want that
3: from you or was that magic that happened in the studio you mentioned british rhythm sections uh, what did you say uh more behind the beat right in America. yeah i was never aware of that and I, I never thought of it in that way actually
0: Yeah, and I never quite understood it. It's just something modern
3: drummer always said. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I I don't know what to say about that. I don't really, I've never really uh, felt that that difference. Mm. But I think, you know, with working with D, it was a specific feel that, you know, if you hear D'Angelo sit down at the piano and play you're going to hear that feel. He, he doesn't need anybody. You're going to hear that, that dimension in the rhythm. So the left hand will play a bass comp and the, and the right hand will be doing the flourishes. And, and that rhythmic tension is already there. It's interwoven into his compositions. Stems from him. Yeah, totally. And really, it was just a way of translating that. So you know, moving that forward to hear it with a drum beat and then adding a bass guitar to it. And as you say, it does give the music space because each each instrument finds its own little dimension rhythmically. Mm. I mean, that's if you want to analyze it. If you don't analyze it, it just feels really good, right? You just feel it.
1: Flipping... 180 degrees you are basically a member of the who whenever they (laughs) whenever they tour get together when they convene yeah yeah. so you go from d'angelo to the who basically in a it's roughly in the same era here not only that you're supposed to replace john Entwistle. what was that experience like for you
3: oh yeah that was really i mean god i was already in it before i had a chance to to think about that you know that was the whole thing it it was such a tragic awful circumstance to, to get a gig you know, to to, yeah. to, to replace somebody who would, who would tragically pass so suddenly.
0: And it was on like three days' notice, right? Yeah,
3: yeah, it was actually, um, three or four days. Yeah, I was actually, at the time I was in Philadelphia and I was working on a record with Common. It was called Electric Circus, that was that album. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I'd arranged to leave Philly and fly back to London. I was in my hotel room packing and I phoned my wife and said, you know, I'll be home, you know, soon. And she said, Oh, well you just got a call from the who's manager and, and, and I said, What? And she told me what had happened. Mm. I had I hadn't heard about John, you know, and I was mm. trying to take that in. Um and she said, Sit sit tight, I gave him the hotel room number and and then uh Bill phoned me, Bill curvishly, and told me that he needed a yes or a no. Can I do the gig at the Hollywood bowl in three or four days time, whatever it was, and uh He needed to know there and then. There was a lot of stuff writing on it, so I just I agreed to do it. And didn't really think any more than that. I made my decision really, I'd worked with Pete over the years and and really loved Pete. And and it's just, you know, it's honor to be asked to be the guy to fill in for John and, and and try and play with the Who. So yeah, long story short, I flew into LA that day and Pete and Bob Pridden met me at the hotel. Uh, with a big stack of CDs, you know, like that was <laughs> <laughs> <Use> your homework. <laughs> mm. Pretty much, yeah. And, um you know, of course, I it's one of the first records I ever bought was Won't Get Fooled Again. So, you know, I I, I knew some of the music, but I certainly didn't. You did. had a head start, yeah. I didn't know all of it, that's for sure. And uh, so the next, you know, that night, I arrived in LA around 10 or 11 at night and really stayed up until I couldn't stay awake anymore, learning as much as I possibly could of the songs I didn't know. At the time they didn't say there was a set list, so it was really just learn as much as you can and we'll work it out. Um, wow. <laughs> and the next thing you know, um, um, you know next thing you know it's the gig at the Hollywood bowl and I'm in the van on the way to the to the gig and it was just a, a roller coaster ride from then on in. didn't really think about whether it would be a, a long-time gig. All I was doing was, was doing a few shows and, and seeing how it went. Uh, and it turned into 15 years. Yeah.
1: That's incredible. And I think, for me, one of the amazing things about it is that you stepped into that job and Entwistle's bass parts were so distinctive. He was the lead instrument on a number of songs. In fact, him and Keith Moon probably played more lead than Pete did sometimes, <laughs> yes. it seemed like. How were you able to define your role, knowing that the fan expectation was to hear maybe certain notes here, or this little bass fill there? How, how did you handle that situation? Yeah,
3: I mean, that, that's really, you know, scary. That's a scary one. I mean, John was such, I mean, he was a unique player, I, I can't think of anyone. I mean, usually if you think of a bass style, you can think of somebody that, that can cop it, right, and, and, and do a version of it or is inspired by it, but I don't know anyone that sounds like John Ant-Whistle um, before or after. It's a really, mm. really uh, unusual way of approaching the bass guitar. So I never for a minute thought I could, I could do any of that stuff. I really don't have the chops and I don't have that technique to be able to pull that stuff off. So for me, it was more about learning songs and... and um, And the integral bass parts, the the bass parts that I thought were were a huge part of the compositions, I learned as much of those as I could. And the rest of the stuff, I just tried to approach it from just trying to support the song and probably play a lot more than I would normally play, because that's Mm -hmm. a part of the Who sound too. You know, there's a lot going on, and uh, I mean... It's impossible to 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 replicate what they did. So I was just doing my best to to support the songs, really, and and play some of those signature lines that I could. Mm-hmm.
0: So if a Who song is is all about everything going on all the time, when you play with an Adele, when you play with a, uh, a Simon and Garfunkel, you back them up, you know, live. Um, is it is it again? Is it I'm playing for the song?
3: Absolutely, yeah, I'm playing for the song. It's just a thing. I, I I enjoy fitting into the genre, and it's like trying to unlock a door. Just find out what it is that makes that music tick, and and then try and find a way of uh, of putting some of my own um, character into that. But 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 you know in the in the correct in the correct way. So I'm not going to play a crazy <laughs> fusion <laughs> jazz lick, you know, on on a on a, on a Simon and Garfunkel song, you know.
0: Right, 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 right. Well, so that I can understand, now that we're, we've been talking about so many aspects of your career, I can understand how notes with attachments is daunting. You know, how am I myself now? <laughs> when there is no song for me to, to, to play, you know, unlock that key, you know, where do, where do we go? So how would these tracks begin?
3: Uh, various ways. Um, some of them I'd been sitting on for quite a while. Like one track in particular, Soundwalk. I had recorded a demo back in 2000, when I was playing with D'Angelo and Soltronics, so that had been around quite a while as a version on an mp3, that's all I had on that. Some of the other songs started live at my home studio in London with um, Chris Dave on drums, my, my rhythm section collaborator on on quite a few projects and we would just vibe on things you know he's he's so creative and such a a brilliant um, musician all around that we would just come up with ideas and I carried those around on my hard drive for quite a while like three or four years uh, before we did anything for this record other songs were songs that were complete um, with melody you know intro arrangements everything was all there Mm -hmm. so they varied actually
1: Exploring Afrobeat, I I love that track. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. Ikute?
3: Yeah, Ikute, that's good enough.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I love that uh, track. And you're, you're getting into jazz. It seems like you're able to sort of explore some areas that maybe you don't you generally work on rock soul mainstream relatively mainstream music but now you're sort of you know exploring these little tributaries was that intentional or that just sort of this is this is what's coming to me right now
3: yeah I think if I think about it uh, you know whatever record I was going to make was going to have those influences I was lucky enough to go to West Africa back in the 90s and, and do some touring and uh, and it was just a, a a remarkable experience on so many levels, but the music really got into me and it's been there ever since. Moving forward from the 90s to around about 1999 or 2000, there was um, a Red Hot and Riot album that I did uh, song for with D'Angelo and Femi Kuti and Macy Gray. Um, and that was a remarkable experience too. We, we, we set up in the studio with uh, half of Femi's band and half of D'Angelo's band and Noel Rogers mm-hmm. playing guitar and-, and Missy Gray and we cut this song live, Water, which is a Fela Kuti song. Yeah, I just remember how great it felt playing that music and you know, I knew I knew some of that music before but hadn't had a chance to really play it like that with with a full band you know, like a fourteen piece, whatever it was at the time. It sounded so incredible, it was so powerful. So that I made a note in my head, I guess, back then and thought I would love to do something like that. Mm, let's do it. Yeah. Probably
0: three, four percussionists, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah,
3: well actually yeah, it was with with Femi. Yeah, absolutely there was. I think there was a big horn section. We even had Roy Hargrove came in. So it was a really beautiful collaboration of uh yeah. of D's band and Femi's band and uh Ross engineering and it it took most of the day to set everything up, and then it was over in t- in two takes maximum. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was just a wonderful thing and so so that 's where the uh, that, that 's the sort of origins of that song Ecoute. I always wanted to do something like that, and uh, mm. I, I also did a gig in london with under my own name at Ronnie Scott's back in two thousand and eleven with Chris and James Poiser and Tim Stewart and a host of other great guests and uh, and we did a really slow version of, of Water, the the, the mm-hmm. Fela tune. I mean, super slow. And, I, and so I always thought it'd be fun to do a slow Afrobeat thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I was lucky enough to have Chris Dave to, to jam with, you know. Um, when Chris Dave plays Afrobeat, it's, it's beautiful. I mean, you know, we both love Fela and Tony Allen especially. And, yeah, we just have fun with that stuff.
1: Yeah. You've done all these sessions for countless artists. Is there a Great white whale out there that you're saying, I'd really love to play with this person.
3: Oh, yeah, that's I'd drop everything yeah. if that call came in. Yeah, I couldn't tell you no, because that would jinx it. <laughs> <laughs> but there is that tells me there's is, there is one, right? There there's got to there, be at least there one. Is.
0: There's one call he's waiting for.
3: <laughs> I wouldn't say waiting for, but you know, there's a, there's a there's so many people out there that I'd love to work with. Fess up, Pino, you're dying to make a K pop record. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: There's gold in them, there, hills, man.
0: For it, <laughs> yeah, right? That's for sure. Well, we have been talking to uh, Pino Palladino. Giuseppe, his mom called him. Uh, It has been a complete pleasure having you
3: on Sound Opinions. Pleasure. Absolutely had a good time talking to you guys. Thank you for having me.
1: That wraps up our conversation with Pino Palladino. And as always, we want to hear from you. What's your favorite song that Pino's played on? And do you have a favorite bass player? Is there one even better than Pino Palladino in your universe? Let us know. Leave us a voice message with your opinions at our website, soundopinions.org.
0: Greg, what do we got on the show next week?
1: Next week, Jim, uh, we are going to revisit our conversation uh, with Lowe, the band Lowe, in honor of Mimi Parker, who died recently. Uh, we had Mimi in the studio with her husband, Alan Sparhawk. Lowe, ama- an amazing band. Uh, they played some tunes for us. It was a truly amazing conversation and performance by uh, one of the great bands of the last three decades. Yeah, really, and very poignant now that we've lost Mimi. Absolutely, and don't forget to check out our bonus podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts.
0: For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our Columbia College intern is Lauren Holt, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott.